Good morning. Um, John chapter 17 this morning. I read something. It was sent to me. I thought it was funny. And I'm going to read it to you. But before I do, when I read this, it caused me to make an observation about church. The church can become a place where participation is minimal, where perceptions are unreasonable, and where worship can sometimes be invisible. Let me read this to you. These are job descriptions of staff positions at a church. Pastor, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, more powerful than a locomotive, faster than a speeding bullet, walks on water, gives counsel to God. Assistant pastor, able to leap short buildings in a single bound, as powerful as a switch engine, just as fast as a speeding bullet, walks on water when the sea is calm, talks with God. Music minister, leaps short buildings with a running start, almost as powerful as a switch engine, faster than a speeding BB, is occasionally addressed by God, walks on water if he or she knows where the tree stumps are, youth minister, runs into small buildings, (laughs) recognizes locomotives two out of three times, uses a squirt gun, knows how to use the water fountain, mumbles to himself, church secretary, lifts buildings to walk under them, kicks locomotives off the track, catches speeding bullets in her teeth, freezes water with a single glance. When God speaks, she says, may I ask who's calling? You see what I mean about misperception. It wasn't too long ago that I was in Washington, D.C., and it was an afternoon where I went to the Capitol. And outside the Capitol, I was having a conversation with a, a lady that I met named um, Natalie. She was from Belarus, and she had recently moved to the United States. She was living in Chicago. She was talking about how hard the transition was to go from her own culture into a new culture. And I asked her about her relationship with the Lord. She said, I go to a church. But then she said this. She said, but even church to me seems cold, and it seems irrelevant. Cold, she said, uncaring and irrelevant. Then she said, I believe in God, I don't believe in church. I believe in God, I don't believe in church. Immediately after that conversation, I had to get in a cab and go over to Georgetown. And in the cab, I asked the uh, taxi driver, who was from Ethiopia, about his relationship with the Lord. And uh, he said he was a Christian, belonged to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. He had also left his country, left his family biologically, And he said, I love going to church. It's my family. Two different people from two different parts of the world with two completely different experiences with church. I've had you turn to John chapter 17 because it's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the New Testament. We know that he prayed on many occasions, got up early in the morning, or he would spend all night in prayer with God. We know that we have uh, utterances of Jesus in prayer when he said, Father, I know that you hear me, you always hear me, 
But here is the longest recorded prayer of our Lord. As he looks to the future, he's about to leave, but he's leaving this movement with his disciples. And they get the opportunity to hear him pray out loud. As we go through this prayer, and we hear what Jesus is asking from his Father, it gives us insight into what Jesus wants his church to be. This is a series upon this rock. It's about the church. Last week, our first installment in this series was that question Jesus asked, Who do you say that I am? Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said he would build his church upon that confession. What does Jesus want his church to be? We'll discover in John chapter chapter 17 that there's four items, four basic things Jesus wants his church to be. The church should radiate the glory of God, number one. The church should reveal the truth of God, number two. The church should rescue the enemies of God, number three. And the church should rally around the love of God, number four. So those four items we want to look at, but we want to do it in two sessions. This morning, we're just going to look at those first two items. Let's begin in verse 1 and see that the church should radiate the glory of God. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Go down to verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 22. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, eight times in this passage, the word glory or glorify appears. Talk about a uh, church word. Talk about a a religious-sounding, stained-glass-sounding word. I suppose glory would be at the top of the list. It has a hollowed ring to it. But what does it mean exactly? It's vital that we understand the meaning of this word because it's central to the prayer. It's central to what drove Jesus Christ in his life. And it's central to what Jesus wants us his church to be. So what does it mean when we read the word glory or glorify? It means one of two things, sometimes both. 
but generally one of two things. Number one, glory in the Bible and in this passage speaks of the visible expression of God. The visible expression of God. The outward, wow. It's what you'd expect whenever God shows up. What you can imagine it to be whenever God appears. Stunning. Bright. Uh, rapturous. Blinding. The outward, wow. Uh, you might say the Wizard of Oz experience. Where they were shaking because they were in the, the presence of the great Oz. That's what Moses was praying for, you remember. He said to God at one point, show me your glory. And God said, Moses, no man can see my face and live. You'll be toast, buddy boy. But it was that outward visible expression of God. It was also what Isaiah saw in a vision. When he saw the Lord high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple and the angels in that vision said, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. That's the outward, visible expression of God. But sometimes the word glory doesn't mean the visible expression of God as much as it means the valued attention toward God. On one hand, the visible expression of God. On the other hand, the valued attention toward God. The idea is my focus is, my attention is given to God. I am glorifying God. The word in Greek, doxadzo, glory, doxa, doxadzo, to glorify, means to have a good opinion of or to make renown, to make renown or valuable. So in verse 4, Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth. And the idea is further buttressed in verse 6. I have manifested your name. Here's what he means. Father, in my life, I put you on center stage. I opened up the curtains and I shone the spotlight on you. It's all about you. And that's the value that I passed on to them. What I have done in making you number one and glorifying you, putting the spotlight on you, I have passed that value on and given that directive to them. Which brings us to our point. What's the purpose of the church? Now, that's a question that has been debated for centuries in the hollowed hallways of uh, seminaries and churches. What is the purpose of the church? What's the primary purpose of the church? What's paramount? Some would say, World evangelism. Because Jesus said, go and preach the gospel to the whole world. I would say it certainly is vital. It certainly is important. But it's not number one. Others would say, well, it's discipleship. It's teaching people. And I would say that's important, too, because Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. But though those are vital, those are not the first priority of the church. The first paramount priority is to glorify God, is to bring glory, to shine the spotlight on Him, first and foremost. Jesus gave the Great Commission, go and preach to everyone. But before the Great Commission, number one on the list should be the great devotion to Him. We forged a purpose statement for this fellowship, upreach, inreach, and outreach. People say, what's your vision 
upreach, inreach, and outreach. Those three words sum it up. Upreach is where we're at here, bringing glory and honor in a relationship with God, first and foremost. Out of that relationship comes then the strength, the ability, the wherewithal to inreach, train, feed, equip, bless one another. And then, third, outreach, reaching out to the world with the love of Jesus Christ. So what's the goal of the church? The goal of the church is that God is pointed to, given attention to, made renown, that people's opinions of God are made better by our lifestyles. That's it. Glorify God. So the church should radiate the glory of God. If you travel on a road, there's a couple of different markers that you encounter. One is a billboard. And a billboard is usually a flashy advertisement, and the idea is for you to get all of your focus on that billboard because they want to send you a message about that product. It's all about the billboard. There's another kind of marker, and that's a road sign. It gives you information. It'll say this city or that city, 10 miles, 20 miles up ahead. And one is pointing to something else. The other is really drawing attention to itself. God would have you and I be road signs pointing to him. It's up further. It's all about him. The world would have you become a billboard. No, no, it's all about you. There's a popular book uh, by a New York author entitled How to Be Your Own Best Friend. And I saw that title and I thought, you know, that sort of captures what the world says our personal goals ought to be in life. How to be your own best friend. You are the center of the universe. You know, it's in all of our advertising. Listen to these slogans from popular companies. McDonald's, you deserve a break today. Nike, if it feels good, just do it. Now it's just shortened to just do it. Nissan, everything you want, nothing you don't. Canon Corporation, image is everything. Pepsi, drink Pepsi, it will satisfy you. Sprite, obey your thirst. Toyota, you asked for it, you got it, Toyota. Microsoft, where do you want to go today? Why such an emphasis? Simply because advertisers know human nature, they've studied it. They know that part of our human fabric, and hence the push in the culture, is to glorify and satisfy ourselves rather than our Creator. Unfortunately, that has spilled into Christian circles. It has become a part of a false theology that says, use faith and get whatever you want in life. Look at something in life that you don't have and say, I claim it in Jesus' name, hallelujah, it's mine. You stand up for it, you claim it, you name it. And what that does is reduce God to the level of a cosmic bellhop. Our concierge who art in heaven. This is what I want. This is what I demand. It's all about me. All I have to do is say amen at the end of it and it's mine. Well, I have a problem with that. If I read my Bible, if I don't, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I go, I like that. But if I read my Bible, I have a problem with that because there's a basic statement given about heaven and earth, all of God's creation, in Revelation chapter 4. It says, 
You created everything and it is for your pleasure that they exist and were created. Well, that helps me a lot because now I understand my primary purpose to exist is to give glory and pleasure to God. It's not about me, it's about Him. We live in the midst of a me generation. Our challenge as the church is to become a he generation in the midst of the me generation. Now, what helps us do that? There's a number of things. Here's one. Worship. Worship. See, worship is one of those exercises that all the attention gets off of me and onto he, him, the Lord. That is if it's true worship. If it's not true worship, then we still make worship about us. I didn't like that song. That was too loud. It was too soft. I like drums. I like choir. I don't like the choir. I don't like the... Whatever. Who cares? It's about him. We're not the audience. There's an audience of one. And that's the Lord. Evelyn Underhill wrote in 1928 to the Church of England saying, we are drifting toward a religion which consciously or unconsciously keeps its eye on humanity rather than deity. Let me announce something to you. We've arrived. We've arrived at that. We need to get back to what even the early -er church leaders believed in. Even the Westminster Shorter Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man answer the chief end of man is to know God and to glorify him to glorify him to know God and to glorify him forever so number one on our list what does Jesus want us the church to be we ought to radiate the glory of God number two and this is the second point and the last one we'll arrive at today the church should reveal the truth of God it should radiate the glory of God, but it should also reveal the truth of God. Now go back to Jesus' prayer in this chapter. As he speaks to his Father about glorifying him, in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Why, why is it, you might ask, I don't know, you might not, but, but maybe you'd come to church and you'd ask, why is it the same every week? You sing, you preach. You sing, you teach. We have a prayer, we have some songs, and that guy gets up there and just keeps talking. I mean, why don't you just have an interpretive dance one week or a raffle or something fun? Why? Why, why the word? Um, I even read an article that said uh, concerning uh, churches, the article said, uh, here was the uh, uh, caption, Church, a trendy place for singles seeking dates. <laughs> Okay, but that's not what Jesus intended it to be. What Jesus said is go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded. You know, many churches, many churches in America are biblically illiterate. 
They're biblically illiterate. They don't have a good handle on the, the principles of God's word for living the way God wants us to live in this world. Biblically illiterate. Some people still think an epistle is the wife of an apostle. <laughs> the church, according to Jesus' prayer, should be focused on him, worshiping him, and should be learning of him through the words of God. Now, that's what Jesus prayed for. And by the way, that's what the early church practiced. That's what they did. You look in the book of Acts and you see this emphasis on the word. And if you look back into church history, and if you do examine all of the great movements, resurgence of faith in church history, you could look back at the Moravian movement, the Wesleyan movement, the reforms of Martin Luther, the Great Awakening, the Welsh Revival. All of them have a common element. They go back to and bring out and amplify the teaching of the Word of God. And that's because that was the very principle the church was built upon. In Acts chapter 2, the very first church, verse 42, it says, And they gave themselves steadfastly to the, number one, apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. And the Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. Number one on the list, the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine. Why? Why would that be number one on their list? Why would it be loving or singing or praying? Why the apostles' doctrine? Very simply. The Word of God teaches you how to pray, how to love, how to raise your kids, how to sing the way God wants you to sing, etc., etc., etc. It all comes from the Word. Any church that doesn't put the Word of God first will become imbalanced, and weak and confused, guaranteed. See, it's like this. There was a, a small village, and uh, the clock in the center of the town kept time for everyone. It was, uh, in German terms, the Glockenspiel. You go to the Glockenspiel, and you'd look up, and that clock, which kept the time for the village, is what everybody set their watches by. One day in time passed, the glass broke out of that clock tower. And um, what happened is people could now reach in, and as they walked by and look at their watch, they'd say, well, that's not the right time. And so they would reach up and adjust the clock in the tower. A couple hours later, somebody else would walk by and go, well, that, that's not the right time. And they set it at a different time, each according to his own. Now you can see what would happen. They lost all authority. And it was what everybody else thought it should be. Whenever you leave the Word of God as a priority, you make church whatever you want it to be rather than what God wants it to be. You lose all authority. That's why Paul was adamant. He said, Timothy, preach the Word. Be instant, in season and out of season. Rebuke, reprove, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. That's why for a pastor... Every other activity in life takes second place when it comes to the church life. I don't mean life and because it's God and our family, etc. But in church life, every other activity takes a back seat to the preaching of the Word. You remember Acts chapter 6, where there was a crisis in the church, and they came and brought it to the apostles, and the apostles said, it's not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Let's get people to do that stuff. But as for us... We will give ourselves 
to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I got a phone call from a pastor in Ohio. And uh, he was listening to our radio show uh, every day in Ohio. And he said, you know, I, I listen and I'm intrigued because you're taking people through the Bible. You're teaching them the Bible. He goes, I want to do that. I go, great, do it. He goes, well, I can't. I want to, I know how to, but I can't. I go, why can't you? He goes, well, I happen to be in a church that is based on a seeker-friendly model, and they don't want me to. They would have a fit. My leadership board, he said, won't let me teach the Bible. I said, well, you're in a dilemma. Because either you're going to have to get a new leadership board or they're going to have to get a new pastor that will dance to their tune. But if, if you want to do what God wants you to do, I just say, do it. Do it. And let the chips fall where they may. But keep the priorities that God wants you to keep. When you do that, it will do a couple of things. When you and I decide we should radiate the glory of God in our lives, in our church, reveal the truth of God, it's going to produce two things. Joy and holiness. Joy and holiness. Look at verse 13. But now I come to you and desire these things I speak in the world, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. One of the things I've noticed about you and I love is that at the end of every Sunday service, last worship song, you all get happy. You go like this. You clap. Now, that's a little strange to some outsiders who have never seen that. They just clapped after church. Because you've got a joy that comes from the Word and comes from worship. These very priorities produce in you a sense of joy. Now, the world would look at you and say, you're a bunch of fanatics. Aren't you glad to be those kind of fanatics? You know, know, I was watching the World Series, and uh, I, I, I enjoy it, but I'm not a fanatic about it. But I look at people in the crowds, and they're like... Jumping up and down and shouting and, you know, hip hop, hooray, etc. And they would look at us and call us fanatics. A, a, a ball is hit out of the ballpark and they'll go crazy to the point of a heart attack. And they call us, when we exhibit joy, fanatics. Well, you want to be those kind of fanatics. Psalm 119, David says, happy are people who follow the law of the Lord. Happy are those who obey His decrees and search for Him with all their hearts. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. So it's going to produce joy. It's also going to do something else in your life. It's going to produce holiness. Holiness. Go down to verse 15 and read a few verses with me and we'll close this morning. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Sanctify them. The word hagiazo. Set them apart. Make them wholly devoted, Lord, to you. That's holiness. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. 
As you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Here's what Jesus is saying. The world is full of evil and deception. But you stick to revealing the truth of God and the word of God, and you're going to be kept pure in the midst of that evil world. You'll be kept pure. You and I are in the world, and the only way we're going to survive being in the world is to be in the Word at the same time. Because if you're just in the world and you're not in the Word, you'll become of the world. If you're just in the Word all day, but you're not in the world, you become irrelevant to it. So we need to be in the Word, understanding God's principles, and then in the world so that we can influence the world for Jesus Christ. David said, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. By the way, that's why we emphasize the teaching of the word at every group. When we get together for a men's breakfast, we're going to have a Bible study. When we get together for a small group, we're going to share something from the word. When the women gather together, it's going to be based around scripture. It's all going to be based around the word of God. And I am so glad for what the word of God can do for my life. I've had so many people... For years after a certain sermon, not that I was thinking specifically about them, but say things like, wow, that's exactly what I needed. Who told you about me? Or, honestly, were you following me this week, Pastor? I've been accused of that. A small business broke down because its its main machine broke down. So the factory was shut down for a couple of days. They tried to fix it. They couldn't do it. They finally called in the the experts, the manufacturers, to look at that machine and fix it. So the guy took a look at it, took out a small ball-peen hammer and one little tap. machine went up, started working again. And then he gave them a bill for $10,000. And the company said, $10,000? That's ridiculous. I want an itemized bill. He said, okay, it's $1.00. For the hammer tap, it's $9,999 for knowing exactly where to hit. And that's what the Word of God does in our lives as we go through it. God, the Holy Spirit, knows exactly where to tap to bring correction, to get the machine operating. The Word of God, said the writer to the Hebrews, is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So, don't let the church be a place described by Natalie as cold and uncaring and irrelevant so that you say, Jesus, yes, church, no. The church is to be people who worship God supremely and study His truth diligently.